Tyler O'Reilly here. Before we start, just wanted to remind everyone of Bazaar Plus, our membership program where you can get extra episodes every week. Just simply go to the link in the show notes. It's Sports Bazaar. A trophy called the America's Cup. Come and get it. Come and get if it. If you think you're good enough. The hunt for the weirdest. It sounds like you're not doing your research. It does sound like that. <laughs> the problem is I have done it and don't understand it. Strangers. <laughs> Designed this ship to comfortably house a cow. Oh, stop it. Cow out the back. Most unbelievable. They launch him across the street by spraying him with the high-pressure hose. Stories to ever occur. Listed in the Guinness Book of World Records for the greatest ever photo. In the world of sport. He actually popularised Gordon as a first name. Which is a tough job. Tough. Sports Bazaar. Cavalcade of disgruntled contenders. When the boat sailed, the crew was still nailing down her deck. Feels like it's almost time for a rule change. <laughs> the monkey called Peggy knew how to sail. Pirates. Are they pirates? We're getting to... Oh, jeez. It's time for the leaders of the hunt. This is a spa meeting, Mick. Grab your togs. It's Titus O'Reilly and Mick Malloy. Welcome to the latest episode of Sports Bazaar with me, Mick Malloy, and of course, Titus O'Reilly. In the middle of the biggest archaeological dig <laughs> I think we've been on so far. What are we, four episodes in? America's Cup? We've still got a bit of ground to cover. We're really going to power ahead these next two episodes. Where did we leave it? We, uh, I think it was the end of the Lipton era. Yeah, Thomas Lipton, he'd lost five. That's enough. He had a crack. He had a crack. He'd made a lot of money. He was happy. Do you reckon he was watching when it was finally won by some No, he was, <laughs> he was... I mean deck, watching from... Watching from above. Yeah, 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 I think he was. All right. We're getting into very philosophical... Let's get uh, a medium and contact him. <laughs> What's happening? So with him finishing up, it becomes a question of Lipton actually passes away. Yeah. And so it's a question of who's going to pick up the baton for England. So we're yeah. in the 1930s now. The guy that it fell to was a guy called Sir Thomas Sopwith. Now, he was quite an impressive guy. Bit of an aristocrat. Well. Had a bit of money lying around. A little bit of money around, but was really an engineer. And we'll go into some of the things he did, because what he did in his life is amazing. He was born in 1888. He was the eighth child, the only son of Thomas Sopwith, who was a civil engineer, and uh, he had a Spanish-led mine company. He really wanted a son, didn't he? (laughs) He He had seven girls. Kept cracking through, finally yeah. got one. Well, he'll regret it because on the 30th of <laughs> July, 1898, Sir Thomas Sopwith, the son, who was a lovely man in every way, but he was um, on a family holiday on the Isle of Lismore in Scotland and he had a gun lying across. They were going hunting and Thomas is 10. A 10-year-old with a gun is never a good idea. I what could say. go wrong? Well, the gun went off and killed his father. Oh, okay. And so Thomas Sopwith never forgave himself. So he shot his dad. But it was just lying on his knee. He wasn't, it just went off because it was the day and he was devastated for the rest of his life. Kind of thing you might carry around for a while. (laughs) You don't just sort of get over (laughs) that. So he then sort of lived the rest of his life really trying to live up to his dad and followed him into engineering. He set up a business in 1912, very early on, Sopwith Aviation. He's the inventor of the Sopwith Camel. He invented the Sopwith wow. Camel, which they produced 1800 World War One aircraft. The Sopwith Camel was a biplane, yeah. single-seater. It was a ripper. Famous because it was the plane that shot down the Red Baron. That's right. Germany's Baron Manfred von Richtenfen. There he goes. The Red Baron who that made and them Biggles, famous. Did Biggles, he had I think Biggles used to have a Sopwith Camel. Uh, so, so he invented that. He's the man that invented well. that. Well. After the war, he goes bankrupt. Because there are anti-profiteering taxes, so you can't make money off the sop with camel. And he also had a motorcycle business that didn't do that well. So he manages to get out of bankruptcy, sets up a new business with his chief engineer and test pilot, a guy by the name of Harry Hawker, and it becomes Hawker Aircraft. Hawker Aircraft, that's famous too. Now, in late 1936, Sopwith needed someone to go to Germany. So this is building up to World War II, but not there yet to consult with the marine engine manufacturer on motors to be installed in a new yacht, right? So he sends this guy, Frank J. Murdoch, over. He's a young engineer, and he goes to the man facility and observes large numbers of U-boat engines under construction. Right. This is when the Germans are not meant to be building anything. anything. Yeah, yeah. He then goes to the Heinkel Aircraft Factory and sees that they're building all these fighters and bombers. Okay. And he rings Sopwith and says... <laughs> These guys are going to go to war. 
<laughs> so Sopwith, without the government, the government weren't listening to him with his own money, started building a thousand hurricane fighters, which along yeah. with the Spitfire, sure. save England in the Battle of Britain. Sure. So he is this absolute hero. He also invented the Lancaster bomber and the first ever <laughs> jet fighter, the Gloucester the, Meteor. Of the, and the Hawker Harrier jump jet, was that theirs as that well? That was the continuation of that. Yeah. He always said that all his success in business was pure luck, which was absolute nonsense. Yeah, bullshit. So he goes into the American Cup in 934. He decides to pick it up. He buys uh, Lipton's old boats and he takes a boat over and he adds all the aeroplane design knowledge to the boats. They're taking it seriously now. Yeah, they're, they're, you're getting the to... best, you know. The defenders, Harold Mike Vanderbilt, who's one of the rich yeah. Vanderbilt family, Sopwith manages to do something that no one has done for a long time. He wins the second race and the Americans are suddenly very worried. That would get their attention. That gets their attention. He also wins the fourth race. So he's won two Oy. races. It's getting a bit. But he didn't have a professional crew because a pay dispute had broken out with them just before. Oh, my God. And so he had to use sort of amateurs and their hands no. were bleeding from the rope handling. If you can afford to send a boat. To pay your staff. You pay the staff. Pay the staff. Wow. He felt they were doing an 11th hour holding him over a barrel, which is why he didn't necessarily so mind just paying people. He was just angry at He them. didn't care for the tactics. The tactics. So literally his crew, were, their hands were bleeding. They were such amateurs compared to the Americans. Probably his boat was faster, but the crew wasn't as good. The Americans get normal. It's an like goal. He shot, him, shot himself in the shot, foot. So... The uh, Americans were lucky. So in 1937, Sopwith is back. This time he's got a great boat, but the Americans have had such a scare. They really get yeah, there. Pull the finger out. Pull the finger out and they win this one as well. So the war interferes. It interrupts it all. A bit rude. Not until 1958 do we get another. So almost 20 years yeah. go by. By this point, the main thing that has happened is the New York Yacht Club and the Challengers, which is mainly the British at this stage, agree that they're going to have smaller and cheaper boats because the boats had gotten to the point where they were so expensive. Yes. Even the richest yeah, people. Even the Vanderbilts the, are even going, the Come going, on. This is silly. So yeah. a thing comes in, which I won't go into detail, it's called the 12-metre rule. It doesn't mean the boats are 12 metres long. Right. It's a measuring it's a formula. Thing, a formula. But this is the one that stays in place for the rest up until 1987. Yeah. So right until 83 where, where story's yes. going, that will be in place. I won't go into all of it because it is incredibly, incredibly complex. Sure. The British challenge in 1958 and the only thing of note from this one is it's a boat called Scepter and it's the most one-sided contest in Cup's history. It finishes 4-0 but it's not even close. The New York Times wrote of Scepter, the boat, as pretty and as lovely as a ballet dancer and as clumsy as an oaf with a hangover. <laughs> <laughs> the British are starting to look at this and going, this is boring, this is all about to change because the Australians are about Put to the enter hand the fray. There we go. Which brings us to 1962, the America's Cup, which is the first challenge from Australia. Now, what had happened is a guy called Jack Palmer, he ran a store called FJ Palmer. It's a huge retailing business in Australia back in the 20s and 30s. A lot of people who are in New South Wales, if they're listening, will, will know, have heard of FJ Palmer back in the day. He was over there for the 1958 race and he was so excited about it, he thought the Australians should challenge and he declared, we're going to challenge. The American yachting community just laughed at him. The Australians laughed too. A Sydney newspaper put a cartoon of him showing him in a singlet with bare feet holding a can of Fosters, <laughs> talking to the Americans and everyone laughing at him like this yobbo. Wow. So even the Australians thought this is ridiculous. A bit far-fetched. Palmer comes back to Sydney and thinks, I need more money to add to my money yes. and approaches Frank Packer to help him build a challenger. Now, Sir Frank Packer controlled, for those that don't know, Dad of Kerry Packer, Kerry Packer James gra Packer, grandfather of James Packer, one of the richest men he in Australian history. A dynasty, really. Yeah, Australian Consolidated Press he owned, which yes. owned all the magazines, yes. back when magazines were a thing. He owned the Nine Network. His son launched the World Series cricket, so enormous amounts of money and power. This is what Frank Packer was like. I mean, Frank Packer was a mixture of humour and amazing achievement and then also terrible parenting, some very controversial things. So he's a mixed character in yeah. many ways. There's a lot to admire about Frank Packer and there's a lot to shudder he's, at. Right? He's saying he may be flawed. He's flawed in some <laughs> ways. But he did have a sense of humour. One thing is 
Once a Professor Harry Messel rang him about setting up a foundation to develop atomic power for Australia in 1953. This is back when they yeah. you know, thought this could be the solution to all our problems, atomic power. So Messel rings Frank Packer and the conversation went like this. Right, Messel, what do you want? And Messel said, your money. And Packer said, how much? He said, £2,000 a year. And Packer says, and what will I get for it? And Messel <laughs> says, nothing, absolutely nothing. And Packer goes, you can guarantee that? <laughs> he says, yes. He says, right, your check will be in the mail tomorrow morning. Brilliant. So this is what he's like, right? He's a, he's a huge man. He acted big all the time, legendary figure in journalism. His newspaper, radio and television empire was known as Pakistan yeah. because it was like ruled with an iron yes. fist. Palmer and Packer fell out while they're building this boat because Packer sends the boat overseas for wave testing which Palmer sees as cheating. The Americans are a bit like you've got to do it all in your own country. The law rules change over this over time, but Packer sort of does this. Don't worry about cheating when you're coming up against the New York Yacht Exactly. So Palmer leaves, Packer takes up the burden and continues on. He was asked why he continued trying. He said, alcohol and delusions of grandeur. (laughs) So he decides that he wants to challenge. Can I just ask, so was it open to all comers? Anyone could write in and challenge. challenge. It's just that it had always been a Scottish or British boat going back, except for our friends, the Canadians, that had the terrible challenges. Oh, that's right. It was just sort of assumed it was going to be. Yes. Now, the Americans were getting quite bored of the English challenge (laughs) because they were terrible at it. But when Packer announced he was going to challenge, the Royal Thames Yacht Club in London, they were preparing a challenge they hadn't notified the New York Yacht Club, were furious that this was happening. Mm. They were like really annoyed. The Americans loved it. They said it had infused new blood in our veins. The idea of taking on someone different, yes, that was exciting then. The Royal Thames Yacht Club announced that they're furious and are going to fight it, that they won't let the Australians challenge. The Menzies government in Australia, very conservative, very British, yes. pro-British, tell Packer to knock it off, that they're not thrilled with it. Really? Because it will Menzies upset, got the phone call. It will upset their allies. Labor government don't like it either. So Packer is fighting everyone to get this challenge, just to be able to challenge, right? The Royal Thames, the British send over a guy called Captain John Illingsworth to New York and his mission is to get the Royal Thames challenge up over the Australians or, at worst, make the Australians have to sail off against the English in a series yeah, to decide series. who will do it. So what he does is he goes over and one of the things he uses is Prince Philip, husband of Queen Elizabeth, yes. is the patron of the Royal Thames Yacht Club. Right. And he writes a letter to the New York Yacht Club saying he favours the English challenge right. and would they accept it. And this creates a bit of a problem for the New York Yacht Club. Right. That's Grumps, some serious lobbying. Very, very political all of a sudden. You've got Menzies' government, you've got Prince Philip involved, all this wow. sort of stuff. So Illingworth writes to Packer thinking this colonial guy, yeah. the prince and everything on board, I'll, I'll knock this on the head. Frank Packer writes back <laughs> <laughs> and says, the American Cup's an international trophy. It's not by implication an Anglo-American contest, as you seem to think. He then goes and says, it's outrageous you're trying to stop us. I was first. My challenge stands. He says, as far as we are concerned, this is Packer, the present situation of being the first and valid challenger is quite satisfactory to Australia and calls for no solution. He then (laughs) says, a reminder, he puts a dig in at Prince Philip. As you were aware, His Royal Highness Prince Philip is also the patron of the Royal Sydney Yacht Club Squadron. So no doubt our challenge will carry his blessing too. <laughs> well done. And the English just back down. They just kind of go, right, okay. Because right. they don't want to embarrass the prince because sure. he is the patron of both. And suddenly Packer's just saying, I can throw everyone under the bus too yeah, if we exactly really want right. to. He played hard, right? The Americans want the Australians. So they go, beauty. So that's it. We're done. Australians go over there. The night before the first race, a banquet's held. It's the cream of society, politics, diplomacy, and everyone. At the head table's JFK, yes. his wife, Jacqueline, Frank Packer is sitting between them at the dinner. <laughs> so this is why people challenge, right? Yeah, Suddenly, you got front row seats. Yeah. So the biggest show in town. There's uh, Secretary of Defence Robert McNamara. There's Sir Garfield Barwick, who is the External Affairs Minister for Australia. Uh, there's all these powerful people there, right, sitting there. 
it's actually a month before the Cuban Missile Crisis. Okay. So it's like, you know, quite interesting. It's black tie. JFK gets up and does this amazing speech. You can watch it on YouTube. This cup has been challenged in the past by friends from Great Britain. We're glad to see Australia assuming the responsibilities of empire in coming here. And we're particularly glad to welcome you in the year 1962. This is a trophy which the United States has held for over a century, unlike the Davis Cup. This was back when Australia won the Davis Cup every year. And we do have a feeling, Ambassador, we do have an old American motto of one cup at a time. (laughs) Then Pac has to get up and give a speech and he's just watched Jeff's cake give this amazing speech and Pac just does a terrible speech. He says to one of his offsiders, that wasn't very good, was it? And the guy just says, not your best moment. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the next day, JFK and Jackie boarded the destroyer, the USS Joseph P. Kennedy Jr., named after his father, and they watched the first race of this. Now, the Australian boat's named Gretel after Packer's late wife. A late wife, okay. Yeah. yeah. Frank Packer says he doesn't know how they're going to go. The British have challenged for, you know, almost a century, right? They know the waters. They know. These. Oh, totally. Packer, this is a brave new world for us. And Packer says, a boat's a bit like a new bride. You never really know how she'll perform until you get married. <laughs> you couldn't say that today. No, you couldn't. Now, Gretel has had some problems in Packer interferes constantly with the crew. So whenever in the lead up to the races, during the races, yeah. he is swapping people in and out like, it's like he's at newspapers. If someone annoys him, he fires them and moves someone else in. He'll often then hire them back, but he's meddling. And they think that one of the reasons that the morale was incredibly low. Was that like Kerry? Is that the famous story about his son, Kerry? I think it was Kerry. Yeah. Who got into a lift at Channel 9. Yeah. Asked some guy a question, didn't like the answer, so he sacked him, ripped strips off him and sacked him. Yeah. The guy was only there to deliver a package. <laughs> <laughs> he was like a <laughs> no, no, yeah. Gave him five hundred bucks and said, "You sacked. Never darken this doorstep again." Oh, really? And the guy yeah. was only there to deliver a package. <laughs> so yes, but that went in the family. The they, whole, they ran. The they were yeah, they, sacking people. They didn't. So he's Nothing. doing all that. Now the amazing thing is, despite them having no experience, they don't know the tide or the weather conditions of Newport, like even the British did or the Americans definitely did. The Australians take one of the race out of the four. So even though they lose 4-1, this is seen as quite an achievement for a newbie to come along and do this. Exceeded expectation. Exceeded expectation. They only lost the fourth race by 26 seconds. Yeah. So the New York Yacht Club was so shocked at the closeness of the contest that they tightened up the rules regarding where components, hulls and hardware could be designed and manufactured, issuing a memorandum that that basically said you had to both come up and manufacture your own bits of the boat or you couldn't go to other countries and grab their IP or get them to design stuff for you, right? The Australians have gone pretty close. On the way home, Gretel's put aboard a um, cargo ship to come back to Sydney Mm. and the Cuban Missile Crisis breaks out and JFK signs an embargo on the Caribbean so it gets buzzed by military plane the whole way home. (laughs) 1964, the British quickly get in on a, a thing. They, right. they think, oh, the M- we're not letting them in. But this challenge is an absolute mess. Their whole campaign is this, this amateurish thing. They get rugby players to do the winching because they think they'll be strong, but these guys have never been on never boats been on before. before. Says that it is, this is the times. It is pointless mouthing platitudes about gallant losers and a great-hearted attempt to capture the prize. They're just saying there's nothing great about in claiming this has been nothing but a stunning disgrace, this challenge. Unbeknownst to the British, this is the last time the Brits will contest the America's Cup. So this is in 1964. This is it for them. They haven't since in the actual Why is that? They just lost interest or they'd had enough or they just drifted off? I just think others are better. Like New Zealand, Australia, everyone caught up suddenly and they're just out of it. Within two days of the British... Losing, Packer hands in an envelope containing a challenge to the yep. Commodore of the New York Yacht Club yep. for 1967. He says, We're back. Yeah. Doesn't give the English a chance. To his shock, he gets told by the Commodore, Well, we've also already received a challenge from the Royal Melbourne Yacht Squadron. And Packer is furious. Oh, he wouldn't have seen the funny side. Yeah. So this is the 67 America's Cup where two Australian syndicates have to go at it to decide who, who would take on the American. Right. 
By this point in Australia, the America's Cup is becoming a big thing because Frank Packer, obviously owning all the media, is covering it in great detail. Yeah. We did all right against the Americans. So some of the Australians are like actually interested They're in the America's Cup. 1967, this is Sports Illustrated. Why does the Cup, a Yankee keepsake for 116 years, excite and incite Australians so? Quite simply because it isn't in their stars. Ever since they took a slow boat halfway around the world to the first modern Olympics, Australian sportsmen have been travelling far and paying dearly to try for all sorts of honours and queer prizes. Queer meaning weird back then. And the America's Cup is just about as expensive and queer a prize as you can find. The fact that a challenge involves a tremendous expenditure of time, money and technology merely spurs Australians on for they are the world's greatest gamblers. That's Sports <laughs> Illustrated, yeah, that's right? That's a fair call. So we are getting huge written up. Now, this time Packer, though, was annoyed because his other Australian syndicate had emerged and it was led by a man called Emil Christensen. Okay. In 1929, he'd been employed as the manager of an ice cream factory. It was established by the American firm FAB Peters who developed and manufactured ice cream throughout Australia through individual franchises, right, in each state. Emil took over the franchise in Victoria and he branded it Peter's Ice Cream. Okay. Soon it became the market leader and gradually he bought all the other franchises and established a whole food company which was listed as Petersville Limited. From my childhood. Yeah, everything everything that was worth having from the freezer was Peter's Peter's ice cream, Neapolitan ice cream, drumsticks, everything. Everything. Peter's. They became the largest company in the Australian food industry. In 931, under his leadership, they had less than 100 people. By the early 70s, they had 5,000 employees. They owned Bird's Eye, High Peak, and Four and Twenty, as well as producing butter and refrigeration machinery. There you go. So he was worth as much. He's going all right. He was worth as much as Packer. At the time, Packer goes on to become rich. Packer just was furious because he suddenly had to do this. But it turned out that the Christensen syndicate was very well funded and staffed and they had a decider. Now, Gretel, the boat went off and raced Dame Patty, which was named after Sir Robert Menzies' wife. (laughs) <laughs> now, race up. A lot up. of boats named after wives. Yeah, is that to like... keep the peace at home? Where are you going? I'm going away for a long time on a boat and it's yeah. costing a lot of money. It's a bit of a boys' trip. However, I've named the boat after you. Like, I think it's a bit odd naming a boat after someone else's wife, too, because this is named after the Prime Minister's wife. Like, if I named my boat after your partner, I think you'd find that odd. I would. I'm, I'm not saying it's. A, Going to end in a duel, <laughs> but I would be asking certain questions. There would be a few questions, right? So that anyway, they've done it to honour the the. That would be a great thing to do, just to, to really mess with someone's I mate. Go oh, by yeah. a boat, think which one of my mates. Yeah, we're all more. Oh god. <laughs> so these trials between Dame Patty and Gretel to see who will represent Australia almost resulted in a mutiny aboard the Gretel because Packer annoyed all his crew so much yelling yeah. at them and so that wasn't going well. Meanwhile, the Dame Paddy was a newer boat and just won basically. Yeah. By now, America's Cup was bigger news in Australia than in America. So news of the Cup in America was huge when the Cup was on. It was on, yeah. In Australia, it had got to the point now where the press gave the Cup a big play whenever, year round. So whenever something happened, it was like in the paper. So... One day a helmsman for Dame Paddy woke to find himself saying in inch high type on the front page that his boat was the fastest 12 metre ever built. He found this odd because he'd never said this. <laughs> but it was like front page yeah. of the paper whenever anything happened all the time. Um, it would bump major news off the front page all the time. So it's that big. The race gets set up. Finally, Dame Paddy wins through and there's a lot of rules arguing between the Australians and the Americans as it all goes through. The Americans have been quite clever with how they like measure certain things about their boat. Is that right? Yeah. Intrepid, the American boat beats Dame Patty 4-0, but there's gameship all over this where there's all sorts of like recriminations and things like that. 1970 sees for the first time three challenges received from abroad. Australia, Sweden and France all put in challenges. And so it's decided that the New York Yacht Club for the first time allows all those challenges to hold a series of races in Rhode Island. Here we go. To see who will take on the Americans. And many people say this is the beginning of the end yeah. of the New York Yacht Club because before that the Americans all raced 
the defender was chosen through them doing trials yes. in Rhode Island. Suddenly now all the best around the world would all – so you're getting a much more competitive challenger coming through the and, trials. And were they trialling in off-road island? Yeah. So they're also getting, they're getting used to conditions, conditions and having a whole series of races. Right. You idiots. Have we gone to so much trouble to protect this, they, they just open the front door. That's right. The French is led by Baron Marcel Bic. Now Bic – and his partner in 1944 bought an empty factory in Paris and they produced pens. And Bick was skeptical of ballpoint pens, <laughs> but he saw a wheelbarrow on the ground and it was sort of making this channel in the ground and moving easier. And it made him think, oh, I think ballpoint pens would work. Yeah. So he went and met up with someone and bought a patent for the ballpoint pen that had been designed by a Hungarian designer, Laszlo Biro. <laughs> So using Swiss watchmaking tools, Bic devised a manufacturing process that produced steel balls for the tip of the pen and it created a pen called the Bic Crystal Ballpoint Pen. came out in 950 and is unchanged to this day. Unbelievable. So that made him a lot of money. Then in 1973, he came up with a disposable pocket lighter that could light 3,000 times before wearing out. So the Bic lighter was invented. And then he invented the Bic razor plastic razor, the first ever disposable, sort of disposable razor. razor. So he had a bit of money. Well, they all took off. Yeah, they all took off. So he challenges. He's a keen sailor. He goes on to fun challenges. He never actually gets the America's Cup final, but he, he's in the challenges since 970, 74, 77, and 980. He'd never heard of the America's Cup until 1962, but the minute he hears of it and loves it, he goes out and buys both boats from the 1964 competition, the Britain Sovereign and the US Constellation to try and catch up and was spending $4 million a time trying to catch up on the Americans and the Australians. So it was decided that Packer was back at this one with a Gretel too. He'd finally got a new boat after the Dane yep. Patty problems. The Swedes had, had, was entered. The Australians did well early though. They needed one more win to become the official challenger. Right, They'd right. beaten the Swiss and and the French. Baron Bick was not thrilled with how things were going. <laughs> so he sacked both of his helmsmen and then dressed in a white double-breasted suit, white shirt, yacht club tie, white gloves and a white top yachting clap, took the helm <laughs> for the final race. Tell me, in his white suit, did he, did he have a bio in the top pocket? <laughs> <laughs> so he turns up and he... What's he done? He decides, well, some people say... He was, I'll do it. He knew they were going to lose, so he decided to like deflect, like save his captains the yeah. the heartache. But anyway, so he's dressed like that, like this old school thing. French newspaper Le Monde has a headline: "Catastrophe!" Exclamation <laughs> mark. Because while they were racing around Newport, the fog came in and he got lost. So the Gretel <laughs> two basically sailed the course by itself because oh, it was the only ones that could navigate. Yeah. Now, one of the people on the Gretel 2 that Frank Packer had found and put on was a guy, a promising young sailor by the name of John Bertrand, which we might get to a bit later. You reckon that he might name become may important. Pop up again. The race between Gretel 2 and the Americans wasn't great. In the first race, the Australians lost one of their crew overboard. <laughs> and under the rules, you had to go back and get them. That would get you disqualified under the New York. Yeah, well, they lost to the Intrepid by six minutes because of that. Now, at the second race, there's a collision between the two boats, the Intrepid and the Gretel 2, right at the start, but the Gretel 2 goes on to All lead. Right. And the Australians say, we gave her a push start and she still couldn't beat us, right? But the New York Yacht Club, as judge and jury, <laughs> rules that Gretel 2 was guilty of the crash and awards the race anyway to the Americans. It's just astounding. <laughs> it's why... <laughs> All this effort and money and everything just to be overruled on the day. That's right. So the, the, Amer Australians, the had, Australians had won. Most people said that this was a mutual coming together of boats. It wasn't the Australians' fault. But the New York Yacht Club goes, no. Nah, yes, they did. Give it. And so it's suddenly 2-0 for the Intrepid. The ensuring it's just an absolute pandemonium. of yeah. The world condemns the New York Yacht Club and says this is ridiculous. Your own boat's involved in your ruling on this stuff. Yeah. So Frank does everything. Packer does everything to try and overturn it. Legally can't. 
And so he finally says, taking a protest to the New York Yacht Club is like complaining to your mother-in-law about your wife. (laughs) Again, not a lot of his analogies would hold up today. No, exactly. Now, the Australians are furious at this decision, but they recognise there's nothing you can do and they realise to win the America's Cup, you've not only got to beat the yacht, you've got to beat the hometown protest committee. They end up losing 4-1. They win another one over that. Packer later says it's really difficult to win over there as well as all the others. He says, you've got to take your crew over there and keep them away for eight or nine weeks and the boys get homesick, lovesick, and their wives get bitchy about them being away so long, whereas the America's crew can go home. Yeah. It's fair to say Frank Packer's views were very much of his time. <laughs> but still, it's he's right in that it, it's, sure. it's really hard for the Australians or anyone challenging because you've got to win away. Well, the only reason to do it is to sit at a dinner between JFK and Jackie. And that's, and that's what it, Thomas it, Lipton got, right? Like, I'm yeah. doing it for business. I'm not doing if, it. If it for, wasn't for that, why would you go over there just to be kicked in the pants yeah. by the New York Yacht Club? Yeah, exactly. That was Sir Frank's last appearance. He died on the 1st of May 1974 from heart failure. Um, his son Kerry goes on to take on cricket instead, so he doesn't Famously. really have an interest, yeah. which we'll have to do that one day. Absolutely. Um, now, interestingly, John Bertrand, having seen the Americans up close, and he's just a young guy at this point, we'll get into his story a bit later, but he sees them up close, sees how ruthless they are. Mm. He decides at this point that he needs to understand them better so being a very bright guy, he wins a scholarship to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, yes. to refine his engineering skills but also to get into their psyche and understand how they do it. And this is the seed starting to be planted for 1983. Here we go. The big question back home for Australia right now, Yes, Packer has passed away, but Australia is now obsessed as a country with the America's Cup. And the idea is we can't let this go. Who steps up and fills that void? Well, it's always yeah. wonder who it is. The answer came from Western Australia, and it was a man who matched Frank Packard both for his money and his drive, and his name was Alan Bond. All right. <laughs> are we are we up for this? Are we going to unpack this now? Yeah, let's unpack Alan Bond. So Alan was born to Frank and Kathleen Bond in London. He was born in London in 938. Mm. They were a working-class family. Being in London, I think they decided they'd like their son to see sunlight at some point in his life. <laughs> So yes. they emigrated to Fremantle, Western Australia. Bond's 12 when he arrives in Western Australia. At 14, he showed glimpses of the man he sort of would become. He fronted court on charges of theft and unlawfully being on premises. So he's doing a bit of breaking and entering. <laughs> he then also got caught again at 18 doing it once again, was charged uh, once again for that. He dropped out of school at 15. And yep. he, so he's a lost soul going to... Doing a bit few breaking and entering yes. all this sort of stuff. He's apprenticed as a sign writer. This is the famous story. He was just, apparently there's still signs up around WA that Alan Bond. Yeah. He suddenly finds this that sign writing wasn't really his thing. Mm. What it was was he realised he loved business. He got interested in the you could make money. Yeah. Right? So he decides to set up a new company called New Signs and he goes into competition with the business he'd previously been apprenticed to. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, whatever you say about Bond, we'll get into some of the problems yeah. with Bond if people don't know him later on, but whatever you say about Bond, he, he was an incredibly con- hardworking, convincing man. Sure. In 1960, age 22, he began one of the biggest borrowing sprees Australia's ever seen. He convinced a bank to loan him 30 thousand dollars this is before people went into debt right you know it was just not the done thing to be leveraged like this is you know in the 60s not the 80s goes use the thirty thousand for property development he just doesn't only get into debt he goes at an alarming rate he just keeps borrowing borrows buys borrows buys has to sell the earlier thing to pay for the next thing Mm. It's always like a house of cards about to fall down yes but it never really does he's selling stuff that he hasn't even got the finance for sometimes yet and then uses the money to sell it. So he's doing all that sort of stuff. People couldn't believe it because it it worked. So, for instance, he bought a big building at 68 St. George's Terrace in Perth, which became Bond headquarters. But when he bought it at auction, the minute he bought it, he told his offsider, Cam McNabb, now I need you to go down to the bank and get the 10% deposit. So he didn't even have the finance yeah, when he yeah. bought it. 
1967, New Science became the Bond Corporation and it went into property, but then it just started buying all these other yep. ones and bolting them on. And so suddenly then he's bought Swan Brewery for $164 million. He famously bought Channel 9. He showed a flair for marketing. He had the painter Ken Dane and the golfer Greg Norman in a TV ad for Swan Lager. They're saying, they said you'd never make it, but this Swan's made for you. Famous yeah. sort of ads sort of thing. Yeah. Now, he understood that one way he could get credibility a lot faster and Africa could borrow a lot more money was sport. So he decides to fund the next America's Cup Challenge and he purchases Gretel 1 and 2 from the Packer family and says, I'm going to do this, which yep. instantly makes him a big guy overall. Another problem Bond had was he'd purchased a big property called Yanchep. He was going to develop it. And Perth's property market had dived overnight. So he's in trouble. He goes, I need to promote Yanchep, right? I've got to sell it. It had been farmland in a small crayfishing settlement north of Perth, but he'd subdivided it all up. He wanted to be a sprawling rich community with a marine harbour. Very, you know. He renamed it Yanchep Sun City. (laughs) He painted the sand hills green to make them look more attractive in the brochure. Wow. And then he decided that he wanted it to host the 1977 America's Cup. But to do that, he needed to win it in 1974. So in the meantime, the Royal Perth Yacht Club was chosen as the challenging club under who he'd um, think. Now, Bond had discovered a young man to design his boat. And the guy's name was Bob Miller. But he would be known to most Australians by his later name, Ben Lexon. Yes. So Ben Lexon, some people who are listening will know this name instantly, others maybe not. So let's bring us up to speed on Ben Lexon. He was born Robert Clyde Miller. Yep. Born in 1936 in Bogabri in New South Wales, not near the sea. Had a very strange upbringing, I would say. So his parents, they abandoned him as a child. So he stayed at the local boys' town and then he finally goes to his grandfather in Newcastle. He seems to have had an okay time there. Yep. At the same time, he left school at 14 to pursue a locomotive mechanics apprenticeship and then he started to get into sailboats. Yep. At 16, he designed his first ever sailboat, the Comet, uh, with a friend of his. He began to start to make a name for himself in local competition, sailing these boats that he designed. That he's designed himself. Yeah. So he's a bit of a prodigy. or He's, yeah. he's highly unusual. A highly unusual thinker, he, engineering mind, but also the ability to build things. He's self-taught or something? A is lot he? of it is self-taught. Yeah. He does some apprenticeships yes. and things like that, but a lot of it is he's just raw talent. He thinks about everything. He takes inspiration from yes. everything. Naturally bright and inquisitive, you know, almost yeah. like those 18th century kind of autodidacts who are bit into everything. He's like one of those. He's a sponge. So no formal education, though. Like Like, me, a bit of a polymath. (laughs) Is that fair? Exactly exactly like you, Uh, you know. So I want to say destined for great things, but is he? Uh, Well, he's obviously got talent. So he moves to Sydney, he builds a catamaran of his own design. He takes up sail making as well because that's quite an art in itself, you know. A few years later, a master boat builder, a guy by the name of Norman Wright, very well-known in Australia sailing at the time, invited him to Brisbane to his boatyard to run a sail loft that they had and Miller starts to treat him as part of their family. Now, one day, so we'll get to when he changed name. We'll just call him Ben Lexon to make this easier. Lexon falls from a mast and ends up in hospital. And the Wright family are looking after him because they, he's like family to them now. And this is in 1958. And Wright actually made him a drawing board in hospital so he can draw ship designs. Fantastic. Yeah. While he's recovering. So Miller puts down his idea for a radical three man, 18 foot skiff, and it becomes known as the Taipan, and it performed very well. So he designs a second, even more radical one yep. called um, the Venom. And that wins the world championship in 1961. In this so it's designed class. by Ben. Designed by Ben Lexon. So really in his 20s. He's and made he's a name world for on the world stage. Yep. So he decides then to form his own boat building, sail making company um, with a guy called Craig Whitworth who he'd sailed and won the world championship mm-hmm. with. And Ben is also designing boats on the side too part-time for people who 
got money, basically. Is that how he funds his operations? That's partly how they thing, fund. So they're doing boat building, they're doing sour making, they're also doing, he's doing some design to fund bringing some Such a familiar trade. story, isn't it? It's like the guy has to paint pictures of the aristocrats so yeah, he yeah, can yeah. keep painting the pictures he wants. Yeah, so it's, it's all that it's sort all of that. stuff. It's like make one for you, make another one yeah. for them, you know. Whitworth is... They compliment. Ben is more a larrikin. Loves having a beer and a chat and yeah. wanders off for days doing thinking. So he's sort of sort <laughs> of the absent-minded professor a little right. bit as well, you know, like. I'll just see if I can get away with that. Where have you been <laughs> for the last three days? Thinking? What are you doing? You do get away with that. <laughs> um, now in 1966-67, uh, they're jointly named the Australian Yachtsman of the Year because of their success in the International Flying Dutchman class. So he's a good sailor as well. He then invents a design called the Contender and it becomes a round-the-world sailing class of its own that people still race to this day. Right. So, you know, he's doing that. He competes in the Soling class at the 972 Munich Olympics, representing Australia. And around this time he meets a guy in the 60s who's made a bit of money by the name of Alan Bond. Okay. And Alan Bond commissions him to build a big ocean racer. And so he does. They get along. They get, and become he, friends. And they become friends and Bond keeps getting him. And so when the 74 challenge comes around, yes. he gets him to design the Southern Cross. Not long after this, we're jumping forward a little, but not long after this, he decides to leave his business with Whitworths and do the designing more and everything. And he's sort of exasperated his name's being used because Whitworth doesn't want to get rid of the Bob Miller name yes. that is attached to it. And so Ben Lexon decides, well, the easiest thing for me rather than try and work that all out is just to change my name. Yes. I'll leave the Bob Miller name with Whitworth and I'll just come up with a new name for myself. Wow. So he goes and looks for a name. There's different rumours about how he came up with it, but the Lexon is believed to come from a certain model of hatch that he was working on called a Lexon. And the Ben bit came from his recently deceased dog, Benji. <laughs> so he becomes true. Ben Lexon. Ben Lexon. It's a great yeah. name. He got a friend to check in a computer on the mailing list of Reader's Digest and American Express to see if anyone else had that name and there wasn't in Australia. So he said, fine, Brilliant. make it Ben. So he's a new name now. So Ben Lexon and Alan Bond, they keep working together. And as they approach the next major America's Cup, the 974 one, Ben Lexon decides I will bring in a guy called John Bertrand to help design the next boat. So you suddenly got right. the sort of the holy trinity yeah, of yeah, Alan Bond, Ben Lexon and John Bertrand working together. We've and got something very important. Bertrand meets Bond and can't believe him. He says Bond's 34 years and here he is challenging. You know, this is yeah. amazing. This series in 1974 is an incredibly important series because Baron uh, Marcel Bick is back, but the Southern Cross blows him away in the challenges. Mm -hmm. Ted Turner, who goes on to CNN. form CNN, yeah. he makes his debut as a skipper of one of the boats well, trying fraught. to become, become the defender. Now, on board Ted Turner's boat, so the Americans have four boats trialling to see who will become the sure. defender while the Australians take on the French. Now, Ted Turner is hoping to become the defending yeah. boat. And on board, he's got a young, amazing sailor as his tactician, a man by the name of Dennis Connor. <laughs> Dennis has only agreed to sail on this, and this is in Connor's own words years later, in a coldly calculated manoeuvre to win a seat as an America's Cup skipper in the future. We've all done it. He says, by being a good number two man, you can persuade the wealthy people who come back year after year and finance these one and a half million dollar yachts that you're a good safe bet as a skipper, Connor said. And he's totally in sync with everything we know about him yeah. as a man and a sailor. We're going to get into it. He's ruthless, Dennis Connor. And this gives you an idea how ruthless he is, right? The racing trials, the American racing trials for who's going to be the defender become like comical. Connor displays such talent but the manager of the Mariner, the boat he's on, decides to replace Ted Turner and put Connor as skipper. So Ted Turner's <laughs> booted off the boat. It's, it's not a boat he's funding. No, he's part of the syndicate. He's part of the syndicate. Go, he's off. been given the ass. But Mariner is a terrible boat. It's not going to win out of the American. Yeah. But Connor 
commands the helm for six races and he's so good. Yeah. The Mariner eventually gets eliminated, but he's so good and sells the boat so much better than everyone knows the boat can go. Yeah. But everyone goes, this guy's pretty good. So the Courageous Syndicate, they invite Connor to join their team after the Mariner wow. gets out. So he's got rid of Ted. Now he's on the boat that will eventually get selected. Ruthless is the word. And he's they, just carving he's his just way to the top job. And they decide he's so good they make him the um, helmsman for the starts of the races. The starts are very Fair tactically because yeah. he's so good and aggressive. And then Ted Hood, who's one of the greats of the New York Yacht Club, is in charge during the rest of the race. But Connor is on the boat to take on the Australians and he is there. I love it when someone comes on the scene and immediately causes a stir. There's, yeah. there's a great story about Marlon Brando. Yeah. Appearing on stage as a minor character in a play in the big time for the very first time. And they reckon he was like at about four lines. Yeah. But they reckon when he walked on stage, all you could hear was a flutter of programs in the audience as, who's this as guy? everyone going, who the hell is that? And it's always stayed with me as it's this some people just have it when they've arrived and belong immediately. Yeah. And he seems to have this Dennis Connor. He's got guy. that. You're yeah. right. He's a bit like you when you walk into a pub. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like everyone goes, this man was uh, meant to be. He's born. He's his natural habitat. <laughs> he, is... he belongs. <laughs> uh, so Connor is born in... 942 in San Diego, California. He's just one block from the San Diego Yacht Club. Mm. Now, amazingly, John Bertrand is one block from one of the yacht clubs in Melbourne. Right. So these guys both like born with salt in their veins yes. kind of thing. Now, his father's a commercial fisherman. They did not have a lot of money. So Connor is surrounded by rich boys whose parents can buy them boats. Yeah. He can't. And he says himself he suffered from an inferiority complex because – Every boy his age has like an $800 boat that they, of their yeah. own to sail. He can't afford one yeah. and he's furious about it. So while he did not, he decides, well, I don't own it. So he, from the age of 11, he's a junior member of the San Diego Yacht Club and he just goes down there all the time. He yeah. says, I was not especially good looking and I never really excelled at anything. I was not the star of the show. So he decides I'm going to hang out at the Yacht Club the way other people hang out at like kids hanging yeah. out at pool halls or like sure. Jimmy White at the pool hall yeah. or something. Yeah. His heroes are the sailors. He helps them when the boat comes in. He runs up and helps them dock the boat. He asks questions. They all call him the smart-ass kid. There's an autobiography title. Yeah. Like. He just does. He's a pest. And so some of them start to let him crew with them. Yeah, right. And he's like a young kid. And it becomes obvious to all of them, this kid's got enormous talent. He can read the sea. He can steer well. He's tactic. He's aggressive. He is a sponge. He learns from everyone. Yeah. And he works harder than any other person. Yeah. So by the 1970s, he finally gets enough money to buy a half share in a 33-foot racing boat. And with this, he starts winning all sorts of things. He combines... Massive talent, this ability to work harder than anyone else. He crushes everyone else in the America's Cup too mm. and up to this day almost. He is – America's Cup and all these races internationally with part-time rich guys sailing. Yes. Dennis brings this 24-7, yeah. 365, professional, right. never leave anything changing. to chance. And all the others resent him. Because they believe, all the other cynics, that he is making them have to work harder. Yeah, he's ruined their fun. He's ruined I've, their fun. It, it was always mucking around on boats was I've, kind of the fun. I've said that to a lot of people who make us all look bad by being too successful or trying to, uh, yeah. mate, calm down. Calm down. You make it, And he is exactly that guy. He's that by a thousand. So where they might all put in like 10 hours, he puts in a thousand hours. Like he just blows it out of the water, right? So he's doing this. He's not popular because of this. He's also been compared with John McEnroe because he's known to lash out at opponents and reporters. He called a New Zealand skipper who he beat once as a effing loser to the media and, you know, <laughs> so he's got, you yeah. know. Newsweek described Connor as a world-class Captain Bly, a man <laughs> of few dull, carefully chosen words. Sports Illustrated speculated that if anyone beat him two or three races straight, Connor might come apart. <laughs> Once his crew, a crew member of his, Annie Nelson, got in a fight with him at the New York Yacht Club 150th anniversary, 
They exchange insults and she poured a drink over his head. So he's got this. He hates the media. He's unpopular with the rest of difficult, difficult man. One of his friends, uh, Jack Suffin, said, Dennis can be abrupt and rude sometimes, but winning the American Cup is the most important thing in the world to him. He hasn't the time right now to think or talk about anything else. Connor once said there's never been any sportsmanship in the America's Cup. Anyone who thinks so is kidding himself. Right. So Connor is this ruthless guy that's suddenly now been brought into this world of aristocrats and money. Sure. And he's like professionalism. Professionalism. Yeah. And he actually brings back for the first time ever year-round professional crews in sailing, which hasn't been around since the 1930s. Right. So he's doing that. So they're taking on Bond's Southern Cross and Bond tries to get Yanchep's Sun City blazoned across the front of the Southern Cross, even though the Perth Yacht Club is actually the one sort of that he's sailing the challenge through. Right. So that annoys people. When Dennis Connors announced as the starting helm aboard Courageous, Bond issues a strongly worded statement saying, Connor has a reputation as an aggressive helmsman in Congressional Cup match racing and we are fearful that fouling and striking tactics will be introduced to America's Cup starts. The Courageous team say this is a nonsensical piece of gamesmanship from Bond. Now what's interesting is they kind of think Bond's a pain in the ass, yes. but what is interesting is it's the first time you've got someone who just off the bat, Bond senses, you just got to take these Front guys foot. on the whole time, right? Yep. Two of the Southern Cross team for the Australians are stopped by the Newport police on board Courageous in the early hours one morning <laughs> with measuring <laughs> devices. Oh. So Bond is staring the Americans up yep. like nothing else. But despite all this talk, Southern Cross loses 4-0. So this is the okay. Australian, Bond's first one. Australians have had a couple now, but Bond's... Bond? Now, interestingly... In 1976, the Olympic Games are on and Dennis Connor wins bronze for the United States in the Tempest class. And in another class, a guy called John Bertrand, who we've spoken about, wins bronze. So there's suddenly this synergy between Dennis Connor and John the rise Bertrand. Of the two. At two young sailors at the same time winning bronze at the Olympics together separately. They both grew up. Meters from yacht clubs, mm -hmm. they are both incredibly driven and only care about winning the America's Cup. So there's these two are sort of destiny is bringing it's these two predetermined. It feels in 1977, Bond challenges again. Um, Ben Lexon's moved to the Isle of Wight and Bond pursues him by telephone. The two fall out because Bond's so aggressive. So Bond <laughs> flies to the Isle of Wight, tracks him down in a supermarket, and convinces him to come <laughs> back. I love these, the levels, like this could have fallen apart so yeah. many times. Yeah. Lexon designs the boat Australia for this 1977 challenge. Ten Turner wins. He returns with a vengeance and he wins for the Americans right. the, in terms of he's going to be the defender. Not that well known back then. He's, it's the 70s. He's a regional media magnet. He hadn't yet founded CNN or TNT. He goes on to do that. But he turned his father's billboard business into the big media player in the southeast. Mm -hmm. He bought the Atlanta Braves and the Atlanta Hawks to put on as programming. He was a great sailor as well, so that's why he's yeah. mucking around with this. So he knew how to sail. They didn't really like him, the New York Yacht Club, because he was new money from down south. Sure. So it's the Vanderbilts, the Morgans, the Rockefellers. They don't like him. Yeah. The Atlanta Braves in the spring of 1977 were doing so poorly that Turner suspends the manager and coaches them for managers <laughs> for a single game and he loses and puts of the other he manager does. back in. He then is found to be tampering with a player outside the rules of free agency, trying to get the mark come right. over. So he's suspended from it. So he can devote himself to America's Cup because he's been suspended. He's from got to spend time on his hands. So he, he still tows a giant satellite dish around town to watch his team play. Yeah. He also runs his mouth. And one night at a party uh, at the New York Yacht Club, he gets drunk and he propositions an older man's female companion. <laughs> And Lee Loomis, the New York Yacht Club's chairman, makes Turner write a letter of apology. <laughs> so he's a loose unit, right? Yeah, sure. He, when he's taking on the other American. Brash is a word. Brash. He would play the theme from Rocky from the boat. <laughs> so he finally wins and he's going to take on the Australians. What happened to Dennis Connor? 
Dennis kind of picks the wrong boat in this one. Yeah. Right? He'll be back, but Dennis kind of picks the wrong boat in this one. Bond's campaign's going okay. It's sort of steady improvement. The Australia is a better boat than Southern Cross, but they still lose 4-0. Um, they're still learning their way mm. uh, at this point. So in 1997, Ted Turner has finally won it. He's walking through the crowd celebrating, swinging directly from a bottle of whiskey. The New York Yacht Club are aghast. I'd love that. He shows up to the news conference and he sat down at the table and slid underneath it, <laughs> got back up and bumped his head on the table as he got back up and was swinging from a bottle of Aquavit, which is like a spirit like vodka. Uh-uh. He then blew cigar smoke in the face of the moderator, Bill Ficker, and <laughs> patted his head all on national television. Right wow. now, the New York Club. What part of them are aghast at this? Yes. this is, but Turner has humanized the cup. People are watching this and loving it. Yeah, like, okay. Americans get back into the cup in a big way because of Turner. And so, secretly, New York Yacht Club are kind uh, of they're, they're harumphing. They're harumphing, but uh, you know, it's good for business. Connor, who's missed out on this, the nine seventy seven one, is fuming. So in nine seventy eight, he immediately two years out from the next challenge, he begins devoting all his time for the cup bid. This is yes. what he's like, right? He says that he's always been surprised that many sailboat racers select their crew not on their sailing talent but on their whether they like them or not. Connor, that doesn't matter at all. He doesn't care if he likes you or you like him. Yeah. It's are you good sailor. So he goes to the New York Maritime College, requests that interested cadets submit detailed resumes to him. He approaches complete strangers he sees sailing with good sailing ability and gives them a 50-page application document for them to fill out. Unbelievable. This is what he's like. No one else, everyone else no. is just sailing. Like, Want to come for a sail? He builds a second boat so he can race against the second boat and test things <laughs> out. So the others haven't even started putting yeah. together their thing. He moves everyone over to San Diego Yacht Club because it's warmer there so they can sail year round they're sailing six hours a day seven days a week conditions right? are lighter there than new yeah york? but a, new york's cold and dark yeah. and you okay. know you can't race every day and but in san diego he, he's so he's drilling them six hours a day of sailing seven days a week mm-hmm. sometimes he would go down he went down and they didn't have enough people to sail he would go down and they went down to the local restaurant would grab five or six of the waiters and get them to sail with him and one of them ended up coming back to newport for the america's car <laughs> So they reckon by the time they went back to New York to actually for the cup trials, they reckon Connor had worked with 80 to 90 different crew members testing them out. They'd logged almost a 1,000 hours in practice time on the water and worked with 100 different sails and he'd spent $2.2 million. This is freedom, the boat. So 980, Turner and Connor face off again and Dennis Connor's freedom syndicate destroys Turner. So it's going to be Connor going up against Bond. Bond's campaign is not running well. This is his third go, 980. He contacted Bertrand in the middle of it and says it's not going well. And Bertrand's just been found out he can't go to the Moscow Olympics, which his heart was set on because of the boycott by Australia. Bond talks Bertrand into joining the 980 campaign, tells him he'd be a tactician. The problem was Ben Lexham was the tactician and Bond hadn't told him about this. He hadn't told Bertrand that Lexham was already the tactician and he didn't tell Lexham that Bertrand was coming Full on way of doing business, isn't it? I'll sort it out later. Yeah. Lexan hears about Bertrand coming over to take his job and punches his fist through a hotel wall, breaks his wrist, right? Bertrand knows nothing of this. He doesn't know that he's been given someone else's job. He doesn't know anything. So Bertrand arrives and the first time he sees Ben Lexan, who he's friends with, says, oh, hiya, Benny. What have you done to your wrist? (laughs) And it all comes out. There it is. They work something out where Bertrand's on the boat, not necessarily as the tactician, but it's a mess. This challenge yeah. is an absolute mess, right? Connor wins the first, but in the second race, the Australians come back and win. It's the first time since 1962 that the America's Cup has been tied one to one. But then Connor requested a day off, hoping that the breezes would stiffen a bit because it was a bit light for him that day. And they did, and he wins the last two. So Freedom beats Australia quite well in the end. It ends up 4 1. So that brings us to Bond in his head has always seen 1980 as a bit of a placeholder sort of. Mm-hmm. He, he kind of knew he, if he was going to meet the Americans, he didn't have the money and the wherewithal 980, but he's now done it three times. Yeah. If he's going to challenge again, he has to do things perfectly. Yeah. He has to change everything he's doing. He's learnt a lot. He yeah. knows everything. 
And so he decides that 1983 is going to be the year that he's going to bring everything together he's learnt. Yeah. He's going to get all the best people in the right positions and they're going to design a boat that he thinks is so much better than the Americans that they can't lose. And when we come back oh, for no. the next episode, we're going to cover the 1983 America's Cup Challenge. Here we go, people. Well done. You've brought us to the boil nicely. I cannot wait till the next episode. Thank you, Titus O'Reilly. As you know, I've been shamelessly plugging our membership program, Bazaar Plus, and one of the key bits that people are loving is you get an extra episode every week. Here's a short outtake from our bonus episode. The one thing, you know, you know is the worst thing to do is to say, don't you know who I am, right? That is the... Sure. But I've once said, don't you know who I am? When did you say that? I went to a Melbourne game at the MCG and I wandered down. We went out with a few of us had been at the game on a Saturday night yes. and we go to this bar slash nightclub and we walk along and I go up and there's a huge line. <laughs> Jesus Christ. No, so I'm with like three <laughs> other people and I go up and say to the bouncer, oh, g'day, mate, do you know how long the line roughly is moving, like being nice? And he goes, oh, mate, for you, you can come in right away. He goes, I'm a big fan. And I said... Do you know who I am? <laughs> so it was the reverse. It was shock that someone actually knew who I was. That's a short clip from our bonus episode each week for members who join our Bazaar Plus program. If you're interested in signing up to that and hearing more of it, simply go to the link in the show notes or go to bazaarplus.com. <laughs>